The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 through 20. The word of God speaks to us like this. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is God's word to us. All right, guys, good evening. How's everybody doing? Good. Uh, it, it's good to be home with you guys. I was uh, out of town. My wife and I were in India for 10 days visiting our church plant in Mumbai, and uh, it's really fun to get to bring love and greetings from those guys. Many of you know Sujith and Cheryl and their family. They were amazing leaders in our downtown congregation that we sent to the city of Mumbai, and uh, God's doing really beautiful things there, so praise be to God. They've got like 40 adults that are worshiping Jesus together, tons of kids, and uh, tons of favor with non-Christians around the city. So keep praying for them, and I'll give you a more detailed update in the next couple of months. Uh, if you got a Bible, go ahead and open it up and find 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, yesterday, I was talking to a buddy of mine from North Carolina, and uh, he asked what passage I was preaching this Sunday, and I gave him the reference, and he said, man, you're preaching some hard passages, aren't you? And I just laughed. I was like, hey, bro, it's not a conspiracy. It's just 1 Corinthians, man. 1 Corinthians is challenging. Every single week, it's challenging. And what I've found and what I hope hoped that you found is that uh, even the bits of this book that feel like we got to do some deep work to figure out what was happening 2,000 years ago, the whole book is just incredibly timely and relevant for the moment in which we live. And today's going to be the same. So I'm going to pray for you. Please pray for me, and let's dive in and do some work together. <clears throat> Father, I'm really, I'm really thankful for the way that you've worked today. Um, I'm thankful that you're patient with us, you're kind to us, and you're also relentless in your pursuit of all of our lives. And um, over lunch, I was thinking about the tone of this text, that if I was writing to one of our congregations and I knew that there was a regular practice of members of the church visiting prostitutes, um, I would probably jump directly to assuming that they weren't even Christians. And I'm really thankful that Paul is patient and he's fatherly as he corrects their error. So Lord, I pray that you would meet us tonight, that you would encourage us, that you would feed us, um, that you would fill us with faith, and that your word would do the amazing purpose for which you sent it, that Christ, Christ Jesus would be formed in us and in our church. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, 
Amen. Okay, so one of my favorite movies to watch at least once a year is Godfather 1. I also love Godfather 2. Godfather 3 does not exist in the canon of Godfather. I pretend like that movie was never made because it's total trash. Uh, much like much like Rocky V, we just don't talk about that one. It doesn't exist. We skip Rocky V and go straight to Balboa. Um, but what I love what I love about the Godfather movies one and two is not just the cinematography, which is amazing. The writing's incredible. The acting is off off the charts good. It's amazing. Um, but what I love about that movie as a pastor, as a churchman, is that it's this crazy picture of how we can build a sort of man-centered cultural religion that compartmentalizes our life to such a degree that it's possible to attend church, to go to Christian funerals, to be married in the church, to baptize our kids in the church, and then walk out of the front doors of the church and straight up kill fools, to commit heinous acts of murder, and, and to not feel the contradiction in that. And what I love about that extreme example is that that is what human beings have been doing for 2,000 years with the message of Jesus. There's a way in which we confuse God's work to break into human history and to establish the kingdom of Jesus Christ with a man-centered religion that claims a form of godliness but denies its power. It's possible for you and me to have a cultural kind of religion that's not about encountering the living God and being transformed by the living God and seeing all of life as his purview as he lays claim to our bodies and our minds and every hour of our week, but instead it becomes a bit of a hobby or it becomes an anchor point in an annual calendar. And what I wanna argue for today is that that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. The Corinthians are experiencing a relationship with Jesus, but there's parts of their life that they've cordoned off from the rule of Jesus. There's parts of their life where they've said, hey, you can come this far, but no further. They've erected barricades and barriers, and there's bits of their life that they declare off limits to the authority of Jesus. And I think that that's the temptation for you and me. And the alternative to that kind of man-centered religion is what Jesus actually came to establish. And that's the kingdom of God. That's the good news, not of a nitpicking, perfectionist dad breaking into human history, but instead a grace-giving, living God breaking into history through his son Jesus, who wants not just the hour and 30 minutes that we give him on Sunday, And not just a quiet time occasionally, and not just the moments in the Christian calendar where we gather together to celebrate Christmas Eve and Easter, but who is the God of all things, for whom all things were created, who is relentless in his pursuit of claiming all of our lives for his glory and for our good. And if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, like we all struggle with the temptation to invite Jesus into bits of life while we also keep a lot of life to ourselves. And in this particular passage, what the Corinthians are doing, coming out of a mistaken idea of grace, 
a mistaken idea of what human bodies are and what bodies are for, and a mistaken idea of sexuality. They've cordoned off huge portions of our human experience, and now Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, is engaging in conversation to pursue all of their life, including their bodies and what happens in their bedrooms. And this is something we desperately need in our particular moment in 2022. So take your Bible. We're going to walk through this thing verse by verse. There's three things I want to show you. Number one, they misunderstood grace. They misunderstood grace. Paul is going to quote a famous Corinthian slogan. This is a slogan that the Corinthians love to use. Um, If they had screen presses, this is what they would have put on their church t-shirts. Paul is quoting them, and he says this. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me. And then he speaks to their slogan by saying, but not all things are helpful. And then he quotes them again, all things are lawful for me, but he answers again, I will not be dominated by anything. This Corinthian slogan, all things are lawful for me, gets part of the gospel right, but it misinterprets the other half of the gospel. They had heard Paul teaching of the scandal of God's grace, that we don't get to God through our merit, we don't earn God's favor, we are set free from the law of sin and death by the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's amazing. They had heard things like this. This is Romans chapter eight, verses one and two. Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No sin that can't be forgiven. Nothing that we've broken that he can't overcome. There's no bit of life that's too dark for his lordship, for his rule, and for his forgiveness. No condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's amazing. It's amazing that God has set us free in Jesus from the law of sin and death, but here's the other 50% of the gospel. The grace of God doesn't just free us from sin and the curse of the law. The grace of Jesus Christ also frees us to a life of increased increased obedience before Jesus, our King, and a life of love as we engage one another. And we see that in the way that he answers them. He answers both sides of what they're missing. All things are lawful for me, verse 12, but he adds, not all things are helpful. Helpful, and and we hear the word helpful, and we can tend to personalize that. He's not saying not all things are personally beneficial to you. This is in the context of relationship and community. He's saying all things may be lawful, but not everything is done in love to build one another up in the gospel of Jesus. Let me read to you from Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Paul writes this. He says, for you were called to freedom. Praise be to God for freedom, for grace. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, through love, the royal law of the kingdom of God, through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, what Paul is saying is this, is that the Corinthians have somehow got the math wrong. They are celebrating the freedom that's ours in Jesus, but they failed to recognize that the freedom that's ours in Jesus is there not so that we can use people, devour people, steal, kill, and destroy other people, 
But the grace of God empowers us to actually love people. And what we're gonna find when we get to the passage on the body is that the Corinthians had so misunderstood their body and sex that when they visited these pagan temple prostitutes who were far from God, who were image bearers of the Most High, who Jesus died on a cross for, who Christians were called to pray for and evangelize, here's what was happening. They were reducing those prostitutes, both male and female, to simply being almost like toilets to expel human waste in. They weren't treating them as immortal image bearers. They were devouring one another and they were using prostitutes the most extreme form of objectification. And what Paul is saying is, hey guys, the grace of God doesn't free you to use people. The grace of God empowers you to build and to bless and to engage people as those with infinite value and worth because Jesus died for them. It's about love. It's about love. And then he adds the second part. Look at the other part of verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. What he's saying is that the grace of God, the freedom that's given us in Jesus, is not freedom to obey our flesh, to become enslaved to our lust, to follow our old sinful desires. The freedom that's ours in Jesus is the empowerment of God in Christ to actually live a life of learning, to delight in the will of God, to trust the will of God, to be those that belong to Jesus. And he clarifies this in verses 19 and 20. Skip down to chapter six, 19 and 20. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And listen to these words, you are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Okay, in our moment, the highest good that we believe in is the myth of autonomy. It's that we can self-author our lives. It's that we can be the highest form of authority in our lives. And that same kind of thinking existed in the city of Corinth among a group of Christians that thought that the grace of God meant they were free to obey all of their appetites and lust instead of the grace of God being the freedom to belong to God through the blood of Jesus as those that have been purchased. Now, when I think about this, and I, I look back at 45 years of sin and weakness and mistakes and my failures, and I think of the ways that I didn't love God and I didn't want God, and I think of the ways that I've made much of God's stuff and I've belittled God, and I think of the price God paid to redeem me. Because like, the price that God paid to rescue and redeem, it, it literally is an infinite price, an infinite price. How valuable is the Son of God, Jesus, the sinless lamb? And what God did for me and what God did for you, if you're a follower of Jesus, is this incredible exchange where Jesus, the sinless Son of God, took our sin on himself and he paid the penalty for our unrighteousness. That's the price that God paid for you and for me. What did it cost God to purchase us from death and from hell and from sin and from bondage to ourselves, it cost the death of Jesus Christ. And that should make us like lose our minds 
that that's the love of God. That's what God is willing to pay to call you and me his children. And so they're mistaken when it comes to grace. They're mistaken when it comes to grace. Grace is not freedom to use people, it's freedom to love people. And grace is not freedom to follow our lust and be enslaved to the flesh, it's freedom to learn what it means to belong to the living God, to be purchased by the blood of Jesus, to not be our own. Now this leads to the second thing, and this might be one of the most important conversations that we could possibly have in a moment like ours where technology is outpacing our wisdom as a culture. We need to understand what the body is. The second thing that Paul addresses is a misunderstanding of the body. And he's gonna quote another Corinthian slogan. This is another thing that they love to say. And then he's gonna respond to it. Here's the Corinthian slogan. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. Here's what they're arguing. They're saying, hey, the body has appetites. When the body gets hungry, you feed it. When the body gets thirsty, you drink something. When the body's sleepy, you take a nap or you go to bed. When the body desires sex, you simply have sex. It doesn't really matter with whom you sleep with. It can be a prostitute, it can be your spouse, it can be somebody that you're not married to. It's just another appetite that should be satisfied because at the end of the day, your body doesn't matter anyways. It's gonna be destroyed and you're gonna be set free from the prison of your body to be a bodiless spirit for all eternity. Okay, that thinking, listen, that thinking is not Christian thinking at all. In fact, that thinking is dualistic, Hellenistic thinking that came from different teachers like Plato that has influenced not just the Western world, but it's influenced the church again and again in history. And, and what here, here's what dualism teaches. Dualism teaches that the body is at best an impediment to your spiritual growth, and at worst, your body is filthy and dirty, it's a prison. And the hope of people is to grow spiritually and one day shed your body and be pure spirits because the body's dirty or the body is an obstacle. And that teaching, that teaching, led the Corinthians to think, well, if the body doesn't matter and the body doesn't affect spirituality, we can be truly spiritual people that have received the Holy Spirit and we can still sleep with whoever we want. We can do whatever we wanna do with our bodies because our bodies are inconsequential for what really matters, the spirit or the soul. And Paul is gonna take them to task because that is not, that is not God's vision for the body. Look at verse 13. Paul says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now he's gonna correct that thinking. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies, this is one of the craziest lines in the Bible, that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Okay, let, let's talk about a Christian theology of the body. 
What are bodies for and what do bodies mean? And how do we receive our bodies as a gift from God that actually matter to God? Let let me share just a couple of things with you. First of all, the body was created by God. The body was God's original vision along with the human soul or spirit to make up who human beings would be for all eternity. In the beginning, God creates human beings to be both physical and spiritual. And he declares it very good that man and woman were both spirit and body. Man and woman's bodies were not prisons. They were not impediments. They were not mere tools or earth suits. Their body was as much a part of their identity, it was as much a part of who they were as their souls were. Human beings were designed by God to be embodied souls and ensouled bodies. Matter is not bad in God's vision. Matter is a part of the good creation that he made. And your body is not an afterthought. It's not an accident. It's not something that God wants to free you from. Your body, your body matters to God, and your body has a purpose in God. And what we find is that when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, when they turned away from God, they fell both bodily and in their soul. The body was affected by sin as well as the soul being affected by sin. Therefore, listen, therefore, when Jesus came to redeem us in the fullness of time, Jesus came to redeem our bodies as well as our souls. Paul puts it like this. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. The body is for the Lord. Think about that. And the Lord is for the body. To be in Christ, to have your faith in Jesus, to bow your knee to Christ, and to be baptized as a public profession of Jesus is not just something that takes place in the realm of your spirit. What Paul is saying, and I get that there's mystery here that I don't fully understand, what Paul is saying is that being in Christ is not just a spiritual union, but Jesus claims your body, Jesus claims your body as his, he values your body, and he's working to redeem your body. He loved you and died on a cross for the totality of your being, which is not just your soul, but it includes your body. Let let me read to you from the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. Here's the question. Catechism is question and answer to help disciples grow and learn the Bible. And the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. Look, your body was created by God. If you're a follower of Jesus, your body has been redeemed by Jesus. Thirdly, this is wild, your body is filled with God the Holy Spirit. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Um, Paul's already argued here and elsewhere that the Corinthians and all churches are corporately the temple of the Holy Spirit. But now he's saying something really interesting about our bodies. He's saying, you're not just corporately the temple of the Holy Spirit, but individually, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you've placed your faith in him, it's because the spirit of the living God dwells inside of you. And now, listen, your body is quite literally sacred space 
of a much more important and sacred manner than any building that Christians will ever worship in. Your body is not dirty. Your body is not unimportant. Your body is the habitation of the living God who comes to live inside of us. And then Paul adds this to those that think, well, the final destination of the body is ultimate destruction so we can be free. Paul says, uh uh, the body will be raised with Jesus. Paul says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Just as Jesus was raised bodily from the grave, and just as Jesus today, this is amazingly good news, just as Jesus today is at the right hand of the Father until he returns. As a resurrected, as a resurrected king of glory with a body that you could see, that you could touch, you would see the scars in his hands, the scar on his side. Jesus didn't shed his body at the resurrection. His body was glorified and raised from the dead. And what the Bible teaches is that because of us being joined to Jesus by grace through faith, on the last day when Jesus returns, all human beings will be raised bodily, those that have trusted Jesus for eternal life, in the new heavens and the new earth. Not as disembodied spirits like in a weird episode of The Simpsons flying around in the clouds. Like, we're gonna, for all eternity, enjoy God and enjoy God's good gifts. And scripture teaches that those that do not trust in Jesus will be raised bodily for judgment. Your body will be raised from the dead. Your body's final destination is not oblivion, but it's communion with God. It's communion with God. It's enjoyment of God's good gifts. And this leads to the final thought on the body that they so needed to hear and so do we. The body is essential for a life of worship and obedience. You can't worship God as God deserves to be worshiped in this life, and you can't obey God and follow God on mission in this life as a disembodied spirit. To be faithful Christians, your body is not, it's not ancillary, it's not an add-on to true spirituality. Your body is a part of what it means to practice Christian spirituality. Paul says you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Our bodies were made to honor God, to bless God as we serve, with touch and with sight and with words and with hearing and with all of our capacities to create, to protect, to bring warmth, to bring fellowship and relationship into the world, our bodies were made to respond to the glory of God in Jesus with a life of loving and worshiping God and loving and serving one another. Your body is so important to the plan of God for your life. Now, before we go on to their misunderstanding of sex, hey man, this Christian understanding of the body is such better news than weird, super spiritual, Gnostic gobbledygook. Like, listen, the early church believed this to such a degree that when their pagan neighbors and friends were hit by the plague, Christians didn't just say, hey, I'll pray for your soul. No, no, no. Christians cared about the souls of their neighbors, make no mistake. But Christians went to their neighbors to care for the sick and the dying at great personal risk to themselves because they really believed that Jesus cares about bodies. The first, the first hospitals ever built came out of a right understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he does to redeem souls and bodies. 
Orphan care came out of that. And we desire to be a church that fights desperately in prayer and with good deeds and with preaching and teaching to be people that care about the souls of our friends and neighbors, but also to care about their well-being. It is, it is a Christian false dichotomy to preach the gospel in a city and not care, not care about the physical well-being of the people that we engage, love, and serve. Bodies matter to God, and your body matters to God. And therefore, like the Corinthians, it's impossible to have robust, growing, vibrant spirituality that negates, ignores, or belittles the importance of our bodies. If we use our bodies as a tool of unrighteousness, you are not gonna grow spiritually and neither am I. If we give ourselves over to habitual obedience to sinful appetites and desires, we must not be surprised if in 12 months we're way more spiritually anemic and, and chaotic than what we are in this particular moment. You can't have a body that's off the chain of Jesus' rule and expect to have a soul that's delighting in Jesus' rule. They're both connected. And this is why in the Psalms we see the psalmist giving expression to worship by raising our hands and bowing our knees and clapping because that's all connected to the totality of who you are, and it's all response to the totality of who Jesus is. So, number one, they, they were confused about grace. They thought that grace was freedom to devour and use each other instead of love people. They thought that grace was freedom to do whatever they wanted, to become enslaved to their flesh instead of to be bound to Jesus in obedience. They didn't understand the purpose of their bodies. And then lastly, let's camp out here for just a couple of minutes. It's so important. They were really confused about sex. They misunderstood sex. And, and I want you to see that Christian Orthodox teaching about human sexuality pushes back against all kinds of crazy views that get taught repeatedly throughout history. Christian teaching on human sexuality um, doesn't buy into the idea that sex is dirty and that bodies are dirty because Christian teaching on human sexuality unapologetically declares that sex and sexuality is a gift from God, a gift from God to be received and stewarded in obedience to God. God's not embarrassed about sex. He's not embarrassed about sexuality. Um, there's a whole book of the Bible that young Hebrew men were not allowed to read till they reached uh, adulthood because it's so alive with charged, erotic, physical, and relational imagery, the Song of Solomon. And God doesn't blush, and he, doesn't, he didn't invent bodies and the capacity for pleasure and then look down from heaven shocked that Adam and Eve were engaging in intimacy with one another. That was the design of God for their bodies. But at the very same time, at the very same time, though sex is seen as a gift from God, it's not seen as an ultimate necessity. It's not seen as the essence of our identity. It's not seen as indispensable. It's not the source of joy, delight, meaning, and depth. And what we find is that sex is temporary that it's a signpost until the great day, and in the new heavens and the new earth, we won't have sex. And we find that Jesus and the apostle Paul and various people throughout the history of the church have been called to lives of celibate singleness to forego the good gift of sex and marriage for the better gift of rightly stewarding their bodies and obeying Jesus as single people. 
And what we find, what we find is that Paul's gonna correct their mistaken identity about sex in some really important ways. So take your Bible, let me show you just a couple of things, starting in verse 16. He says, do you not know that he that is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two, the two become one flesh. And he who is joined with the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Okay, Paul's saying, listen, you can't have casual sex with a prostitute or anybody else because sex is not, by its very created plan and purpose from God, sex is not a casual thing. And what Paul is quoting from when he says it's been written is God's blueprint for human sexuality found in Genesis chapter two. And what we find, what we find is that God created the covenant of marriage to be reflective of some really mysterious things that point to the living God himself. Tim Keller puts it like this. He writes, in short, sex with a prostitute is wrong because every sex act is supposed to reflect an absolute, an absolute and complete covenant unity. There must be no physical union unless there's also every other kind. Legal, economic, personal, emotional, and spiritual union. There must not be one unity, sexual unity, without the rest. Likewise, C.S. Lewis likens sex without marriage to tasting without swallowing and digesting. What Paul is getting at and what we need to hear today is that sex is far more mysterious and far more profound than what our culture has given it credit for. And if we could be honest, many of our attempts at engaging with casual sex have resulted in the kind of fractures and broken relationships and disappointments and shame and fear and all kinds of things that happen when we take a tool that is really powerful and we use it for a purpose that it wasn't designed for. Our culture essentially thinks that sex is just about physical pleasure. It's a sort of um, pleasure technology that you can master. And in this worldview of sex, the key to sexual fulfillment is simply performing sex the right way and consuming sex frequently. And the problem is sex is a really deep thing that's not about performance or being consumers. In fact, the scripture teaches that sex points us to God. It points us to God in its unitive and procreative power. And God's clear, God's clear and consistent command that sex be limited to the boundaries of an exclusive and permanent covenant of marriage between a man and a woman is not rooted in puritanical fear or hostility towards biological function or bigotry. It's rooted in a deeper understanding of just how powerful sex really is. Sex unifies bodies and souls. Sex mysteriously points us to being drawn into the otherness of God. Sex points to the union of Jesus with his church. Sex reflects the creative power of God with its potential for procreation. Therefore, listen, there is no such thing as casual sex all sex is both physical and spiritual. It has consequences. 
I was thinking this week about a paragraph in Mere Christianity where Lewis is talking about free will and how free will has gone wrong. And he's not writing about sexuality, but I, I think the connection here is really powerful. Here's what he writes. Why did God make a creature of such rotten stuff that it went wrong? Another way to ask that question is, why is the world so jacked up? Why do human beings do such terrible things if there's a good God? He goes on to say, the better stuff a creature is made of, the cleverer and stronger and freer it is. Then the better it will be if it goes right. But also the worse it will be if it goes wrong. A cow cannot be very good or very bad. A dog can be both better and worse, a child better and worse still, an ordinary man still more so, a man of genius still more so, a superhuman spirit best or worst of all. And I think that that's actually a really helpful way to think of why sex is such a powerful thing, why the hooks of sex go so deeply, because God's given us all kinds of gifts and they vary in their impact and power. The gift of bread's amazing, and the gift of bread can and does go wrong. Um, we can become gluttonous with food. We can overindulge, we can hurt our bodies. We can be stingy with food and not practice hospitality and care for the poor. But the very worst that we can do with a loaf of bread pales in comparison to the damage that can be done by taking the gift of sex out of its context. Sex can be like a campfire, a campfire that's overspilled its boundaries, and it's gone from bringing warmth and life to actually destroying and wiping out an entire community. And I just wanna stop here, and I wanna say that the heart of the Father, the heart of our Heavenly Father in this passage is, is really clear if you're willing to listen for it. And the heart of the Father is at least twofold in this passage. The first thing that our Heavenly Father is saying to his people throughout history is flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Don't mess with it. Don't try to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with it. Don't flirt with it. It's serious, and we need each other, and we need, we need help from brothers and sisters to flee sexual immorality. It's not light. It's not trite. It's not something little. It's something serious. It's something serious. And that first invitation from our Heavenly Father, I hope if you need to hear it today, I, I hope if you're taking light sexual immorality, that today would be a day where you surrender that to Jesus, where you break free from the kind of Godfather one and two spirituality that allows yourself to compartmentalize huge portions of your life away from Christ, that you invite him into your sexuality, that you receive his help and his grace, the second invitation from our Father, though, is also always around sex, an invitation to experience restoration, forgiveness, and healing. Because there is no such thing as a scarlet letter in the kingdom of God. And there is no sexual sin that you could possibly commit. The most heinous acts of sexual sin all pale in comparison to the power of the blood of Jesus. That doesn't mean that there aren't legal consequences and relational consequences, but the glory of God in Jesus is so fully demonstrated in his willingness to forgive that he invites all people to him. 
There's nothing you've done. There's nothing you've done that could possibly hinder the promises of God in Jesus from being fulfilled in your life. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. There's nothing that precludes you from being a part of the family of God. Nothing that you've done, no mess that you've made, no sin that you've committed is higher or deeper or wider than the power of the cross. And that means you can receive today, you can receive new life in Jesus, forgiveness in Jesus. This also applies to the heart of God for those that have been sinned against. There's places where the choices other people have made sexually has profoundly affected and damaged us. And I want you to see, I want you to see that God's grace and God's presence and God's invitation to us is to receive the fullness of Jesus and to see the face of your heavenly Father that's towards you and that's shining in delight for you because of the work of Christ. And my prayer, my prayer for our church is that we could do some more nuanced biblical thinking about things like shame. Because our culture has one message about shame. Shame is always bad, always bad. And, and make no mistake, there's a kind of shame that Satan delights in. There's a kind of shame that leads to hiding and running from God. There's a kind of shame that says that we're so profoundly broken and unlovable that not even God wants us. And let me as loudly and as clearly as I know how to say, proclaim from this stage, that is a lie. It's a lie. But listen, there's another kind of shame that's actually a gift from God. There's a kind of shame, there's a kind of shame that connects us to our creatureliness, that we're wounded and we need to be made whole, that we're naked and we need to be clothed, that we're hungry and we need to be fed. There's a kind of shame, there's a kind of shame that warns us that there's something going on that needs to be addressed. There's, there's a kind of shame that invites us into deeper communion where we actually trust each other with parts of our life. And we trust God with parts of our life. Now my, my prayer for all of us today, and all day it's, I've had two things happen at the end of each sermon. I've had that panicked moment where I look out at the faces of people I really love that I've prayed for all week, and I feel my inability to actually apply God's word in the hundred different places it needs to be applied in this room. The nuanced, complicated story of your life, where you need conviction and repentance, where you need to be comforted and made whole, where you need community, where you need to just sit with God, like, I, I, I don't know, I don't know. And in that moment, I start to get really overwhelmed, and then I remember the truth that God is the sovereign God of the universe, and he knows. And he sees every person in this room, and he knows what you need even when you don't know. And his word doesn't return to him void. It accomplishes the purpose for which he spoke it. So where do you need to hear the invitation of your heavenly Father? Where do you need to respond? Will you pray with me? Hey, Father, I thank you that you are, you are willing and you're able to apply this text of 
sacred scripture to every person in this room. Some of us need a scalpel that cuts with precision. Some of us need illumination where our misunderstandings of grace and our bodies and sex get brought into the light of day and we see that it's not true. Um, Some of us need to feel the gaze of a father who says, I love you and I want you and I choose you. And uh, Father, I actually don't trust my heart and I don't trust my friend's heart to tell us what we need from you in this moment. I think some of us in the room think what we need is a kick in the face when actually what we need is to hear the tender words of Jesus. And I know there's times where we think we need the tender words of Jesus and we need Jesus to make a whip and turn over some tables to save our lives. So will you just come, Holy Spirit, and would you apply, would you apply the word that you inspired in the appropriate timely place, in the appropriate timely way that we each need it? We pray that you would help us to take seriously the command to flee sexual immorality. God, we pray that we would offer our bodies that belong to you, to you in worship and service. God, I pray for myself and my brothers that you would help us to be men of honor with the women of our church and the women of our city and help the women of our church be men of courage and be women of courage and integrity. And uh, Lord, all the places where our relationships get broken down with this consumeristic, performative using of each other, I just pray that you would deliver us from that. Teach us to love. Teach us to love like you loved us. Teach husbands to love wives and wives to love husbands. Teach brothers and sisters to love each other. Hannah, we love you and we need you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.